Welcome to the Joy and Needles show. We have Ellen Baird here with us now. Thank you. This is called Moto Gutsi. Okay. How many nights had we all sat at that same counter? Music behind from the stereo, beers and all covering the top, people smoking outside the sliding door, three black dogs looming just out of sight. Let's go get that motorcycle. Sai looked at me and smiled. I knew it wasn't my decision, but for a smile like that, I'd have walked the 15 miles. The question was to others in the room, but I wasn't going to be left behind. It didn't seem that late to me. Still plenty of people in the house, and we saw more as we were leaving. Whether or not anyone considered size offer, we'd had enough of that place for the night. Thursdays are big nights at Mick's house. Most of us work days, and Thursday night is close enough to the weekend. The women talked about plans and the men told stories. We all drank and then we went home with each other. Do you think Kirk will be there? Brad asked. The three of us walked past parked cars in the driveway. What time is it, Lena? All evening the sun had been reflected in the clouds high on the horizon, making it seem twilight, late. It was hard to imagine the time now. Uh, about 11, hang on. I walked towards the house lights, extending my arm. Brad and Sai kept walking. 11.40, close. Would Kirk be there? He lived with his sister on the north side of town. He worked nights, but it was slow now, summer. I came back to the road where they were standing in the gravel, talking. Brad was tall and thin. He looked young. A lot of girls liked him, but only ever told one another each one thinking they could never catch him. He was shy. I had gone to the river with him once long ago, but nothing ever came of it. Now I knew him even better because he was such a good friend of size. It's 11.40, I said. Oh man, I'm out of here, you guys. We both looked at Brad in protest, and then I looked at Sai. It's too late, Brad continued. You should have said it earlier. Let's go, Brad. It'll be one way for you, Sai said. Sai is my boyfriend. He instigates us. It's a trait he's glad to have, and we're always there to support him in it. He persuaded me to go out with him. He's not super handsome. At least he doesn't knock you out. But he's lots of fun to be with and is usually good at getting us out of trouble. He hadn't been with many women, and I sometimes wondered what he saw in me. Sai lit a Marlboro and put one hand in his jeans pocket. He was about to give it a try. It's only 15 minutes away. How do you know it's ready? Brad asked. Does it matter? Just give us a ride. I would go along. It didn't have to do with preference, but willingness and association. We spent many nights like this, the three of us, on the verge of making it happen. It was about a last beer run, or driving out to the lake, or picking someone up who had decided late to join us. These nights made our days. They gave us uncertainty ahead and stories to tell after. I'll take you as far as my house, then you're on your own, Brad said. You cheap fucker, said Sai. I'm not the one who wants to go. I'm not going to get to ride it. 
Oh, Brad, you should, I said. He started to give reasons again, but then Cy offered, Yeah, of course I'll let you write it. It's almost 12 and I'm going home. It can wait till tomorrow, Brad said. In the truck, Cy went on about the bike. Kirk began working on it when Cy had given up on it. I liked that he understood the deals he was making, even this ride. More than him knowing how to work on the motorcycle, it was important that he knew who could and for what. He completely redid the wiring, Cy said. Was it a mess? Brad asked. No. I sat by the window in Cy's lap. The moon was high and I could only see it from close to the door. I looked off into the fields for deer. The image I had of the motorcycle was from the last time I had seen it. Cy and I were at his house in Loma. A lot of us had spent the night there after a big party, and in the morning we were all cleaning up the place while coffee was started inside. Bottles and trash everywhere, plates of food and cigarettes scattered on the back lawn. About six of us were awake, many of them I had met the night before. My friend Jacob was there, and he was telling me how he ended up sleeping in the shed. Well, then I looked around and realized I wouldn't make it out of there. People were there when I lay down, but then I got up in the night and everyone was gone. All the lights were on and the door was wide open. It was freezing. I guess I slept through it all. I was fishing cigarettes out of the potted ferns, thinking that many of them had been there from before, but my hands were already dirty and their white papers made them an easy catch. We were laughing, and half of it was how we all looked rumpled and thick-lipped from sleep and wearing party clothes that were now wrinkled and smoky and brash in the morning light. Cy came walking up from the drive and back. He was wearing a coat and was barefoot. He looked like he had gotten sick. His short-cut dark hair was scattered. It might have been a hangover, but I extended myself anyway. Is there a lot more to clean up back there? I felt pretty good, and I looked around for some more trash bags. No, it's not that. He looked at Jacob then. Something got into the chickens last night. I looked at him again, and I thought maybe he would be sick. The chickens weren't his, and he took better care of them because of that. The chickens belonged to Kirk, and that's how we met him. It was a land agreement. A man like Kirk would set up someone like Cy with the chicks. He would raise them until they were big enough to slaughter and then return them to the owner. Cy earned money for each chicken healthy enough to get full price for. Limited liability and a big income for someone with land. Are they dead? I didn't move any closer to him. There could still be an emergency and at least work to do. Most of them. Some are gone. The others... They aren't going to make it, he said. I knew what that meant, and I didn't want to know what he had found. I was curious about the ones that were gone, and I think we all concentrated on what had gotten them. Tears stung my eyes and nose for anger and not for the chickens' lives. There's this frustration when an animal dies that it's already done and you didn't stop it, and you're left wishing you could repair it, to be given a chance. We're really only in control when they're living, and we're so hopeful. None of them, Jacob had asked as they both began walking back. I stayed still, doubting it was real, enough so that I didn't want to see, but also needing to, to believe it. He had to be wrong. Are you sure, I asked. Yeah, Lena. Impatiently, he turned away. Um, hang on. I searched for something to say to get them to stay a minute longer, anything. Do you want help? 
I wanted to see it, just enough of it to understand and then to cover my eyes against my curiosities. I didn't want the image stuck in my memory. I had to let them deal with the details. No, Lena, we'll do it. You shouldn't come. It's a big mess. Saya was making it easy for me to stay. I looked at what he was holding, the bag for trash. Inside the house, more people were waking up. Everyone would know soon. I wanted to be there before them. Sai, I called out. They were almost round the back by now. I ran toward them until I got close. Both he and Jacob stopped. Can I get you some stuff to clean it up? I really had no idea what kind of mess there was. The only dead animals I'd seen were killed by cars. They were far away and looked like they were sleeping. Well, he didn't know either. How about a shovel? Yeah, it had to be that. Where? In the shed by the back door, Sai said. I started walking backwards, and then I turned and ran. We hit a bump in the road. I turned back to Sai and Brad in the cab of the truck. They'd been talking most of the way about the details of the rebuilt motorcycle. Most of it I didn't understand and didn't bother to try, but once or twice, Sai asked me questions. When did we see Kirk, Lena? Monday. I looked out the front and then the back to the side window. I straightened my leg and resettled. Brad had put the shell back on his truck and wind rushed between it and the cab, so the music was that much louder. Yes, I continued, on Monday, he got the tank back, and so now with the pipes being chromed, it should be ready to paint. Is it primered? Brad asked. I think he said it was. It'll be a pain if he didn't do it first. We passed a big sycamore under the branches were lit up white, and then it was gone. We were almost to the intersection that would take us to Maine and then up the hill. I thought about how much Sai had lost that night at his house and how our relationship had been so new. And thinking about how far we had come, it must have helped us to have gone through that together. Not that I was that much help that day, but later in the night we talked long, Sai developing a plan and I helping him think of those things he forgot. Then we had sex in his bed while his roommate watched TV in the next room. When I had gone into the shed to get the shovel, I stumbled at the entrance, looking for the light. It hung from the ceiling. A string pulled it on. Inside, there was a dark room, tubs of water on the floor and shelf top, lights, lenses, lines, and tabs crisscrossed the room, a drain in the cement floor, and a motorcycle in boxes. The gas tank rounded out the top of one box. I didn't know about the motorcycle, especially whose it was, but it looked like it had been there a long time, the value forgotten. I found the shovel and carried it back. More people were there, and when I approached the group, I couldn't initially make out the back of Sai's coat. He was bending down inside one of the chicken houses, poking at feathers and turning over busted wood with a short stick. In the dark, low corners where the sides were wood, a few chickens, their feathers torn off, sat still, so I thought they were dead, but their eyes were open. They were shaking and absolutely silent. On one side of the cage, there was a chicken pressed up against it, its wings spread backward. One leg was pulled through the space in the wire, and on the other side, I could see the bone. It was bloody, and tufty feathers were still attached. There was blood all around, soaking in dark brown and wet on the ground. I turned away then and handed the shovel to the closest person. Here, thanks. I went back to the house and turned the hot water on to fill the sink. The rest of the morning I stayed inside, washing glasses and sweeping up leaves and grass that had been tracked in. 
People left slowly. Some cars stayed until the, in the drive until after Sai came inside. He went in and started to undress. I sat at the table wondering if I should make something to eat. I considered a third cup of coffee. The idea of breakfast fell away. By the time either of us were ready to get serious about any food, I decided it would be dinner and made a lot of it. Oh, Lena. Sai looked beat, and the food I'd made would put us both to sleep soon. I cracked two beers and put them on the table in front of him. The pasta's almost done, I said. He reached for the beer, and the first drink he took was a long one. I did the same. It was cold and light, and it had just enough alcohol that I felt the best I had all day. I took mine back to the counter where I was slicing tomatoes. What a fucking mess. I must have buried 200 chickens. I don't know where the others are. He leaned his head on his hand and emptied the can. Is there more beer? Yeah, there's some from last night in the fridge. I motioned with the knife. I'm screwed. He sat down again, and I brought our plates piled with steaming spaghetti. How much do we owe him, I asked, rolling pasta round and round on my fork. Fuck, I don't know. I usually get five, six hundred bucks. I don't know. I've never lost more than one or two. They're all gone, Lena. I lost them all. Do you have any idea? I didn't expect him to answer, but I looked at him to see he was calculating. His brown eyes staring at a spot on the table, unmoving. His hands closed into fists on either side of his plate. I could pay him back, but it would take me a few months. I don't know if he'd hire me again until then, or at all. Sai reached above the table and slid the window open. It was white with steam, and the whole kitchen was hot. What about a trade, I asked, taking another drink of beer. Being removed allowed me to think beyond the necessary. You know how Kirk has all those crazy deals going on with those guys for lumber and stuff? What's that all about? Oh, yeah, but that's totally different. He does work for them. What could I do for him that he doesn't already know how to do? Besides, where would I find the time? Sai took his first bite of spaghetti, long noodles still connected to his plate. He bit through them. Trade him that motorcycle in the shed, I said. If he took it the right way, we had both just scored. If not, I was only distracting him from serious solutions. I waited. He looked at me as if I had mentioned someone's name from long ago. The Motobutsi? I don't know. I saw a motorcycle in there today. Is it yours? Yeah. He smiled for the first time that night, and I wanted to kiss him that instant. Yeah, I don't know what I'm waiting for anymore with that thing. It's worth a lot of money, but right now it's kind of lost its attraction for me. It's a beautiful bike. There's not really much left to do on it. And then he smiled at me, and I knew. I pushed my plate out of the way, and I leaned over the table. I started to kiss him with my eyes closed. I could feel that he was still thinking, and then his lips softened, and he gave in, and he was kissing me. He put his hand on the back of my neck, underneath my hair, and it was warm and strong. How did you know, he asked after I pulled away. I kept looking at him, leaning over the table like that, enjoying that he was mystified. That night did make us stronger. He made the deal with Kirk, and Kirk went for it. The Motoguzzi parts and all, and the manuals, and the title, and exchange for the $500 lost in the chickens. No one ever found out what had gotten them, either. Later, when we would tell the story, it became the Phantom, and the story was strangely a triumph, a story we would tell at parties and to friends from out of state. It was part of our history. That had been months ago, a year maybe, was it? I struggled with my memory, putting events in place and assigning them to months and seasons. 
and now Kirk had the bike completely repaired as if it had never been apart. He had called Sai to tell him. On Monday when we saw him, Kirk thanked him for the chance to bring the back, bike back to life. Sai looked proud, and I thought then that he had got the best out of the deal. I held his hand, and I too said to Kirk, I can't wait to see it. The clock in the truck read 12.08 when we pulled into Brad's driveway. He lived alone, and Kirk's place was only five blocks away at the most, but he still wasn't offering or interested in coming to see the bike. It may have been something they exchanged with a glance, but I felt that Brad was giving that opportunity to me, and I stayed quiet. He and Sai talked by the front of the truck. I walked to the street, taking in the sky where it was darkest above the foothills that gave way to the forests and fields behind the houses. The air was clear, but warm from the day, and a light wind kept the stars in view. Sai came up behind me and put his arm on my shoulder. I could smell his cigarette burning. I turned to see his face, and he looked ready. Let's go, I said, and gave him a nod and took the first steps. We walked in the center of the empty street. A few houses lit with blue light from behind curtains. The rest were dark. What color is he going to paint it, I asked. He said shiny black. I think it would look great in red. Are motorcycles female, like boats, I asked. I don't know. That's a good one. I guess it's up to the owner, Sai said. Is that Kirk? I looked at Sai walking next to me in the night, his steps regular, his jacket open, loose, open and loose around him. Yeah, that's Kirk. But tonight, we're the babysitters. Sai held up a shiny key and put it out for me to see. I moved toward him and locked my arms in his. Grinning, I asked, can we really ride it tonight? You bet. We walked on, barely noticing the blocks behind us. Kirk's house was one of the few lights on besides the TV. Sai and I walked up to the fence. It surrounded the whole place and started with the carport. The house sat back from the street and there was a wide lawn in between the gate and the front porch. Sai tried the gate and it was open. We walked through the yard and up two steps. At the back door, Sai knocked. Kirk opened the door. He stood, warmly lit in a long carpeted hall, pictures behind him and the TV sounding from the next room. Kirk had no shirt on and he kept his hand raised against his chest. A dog barked from across the street and he looked out over the fence. Hey, first surprised, but not displeased. We all smiled at each other and said hellos. Hang on, let me get something inside. He closed the door. Sai took out a cigarette and we went back to the yard. I didn't want to wander, but I looked around at the junk cars, engines covered up in blue tarps, bricks at the corners, tall metal racks with boxes and parts, hooks, tools. The whole carport was filled and covered. Sai opened another door into the garage. He stopped and turned back around. He looked at me. Let's wait, I said. He knew that already, and he nodded. We looked at other stuff and made guesses, laughed out loud, and wondered if we might wake someone. Kirk came out of the house then with a shirt on and a cigarette. He switched on a light, and then we were all right there at midnight in his carport. Want to see it? Kurt smiled. He was very relaxed. His eyes were bright, though, and he reminded me of a child. Yeah, we couldn't have said it fast enough. In his garage on the far side was a low, rough, black motorcycle. A ping pong table leaned on its side was against the wall behind it. We walked up to it, Kirk getting the closest and actually touching its fender. I walked around to see it all. It was shiny and new along the pipes and the tank and the short handlebars. The chrome was bright 
and the silver color looked wet because of its ability to reflect the light in it. Even our faces and hands appeared in its surface when we reached out or got close. The chrome looked black where it would bend around a bar or a pipe, but following it around I could see it was even in its gleam. Only one big speedometer dial on the panel. The front light was thick dome glass in a ring of bright chrome. The glass was perfectly clear, and the point in the dome was like that of an arrow, guiding and direct. From this dome, the light would be the first thing to hit the ground. Before the kickstand was raised and put out of the way, before the black knobby tires would spin, spokes of blur, the light would be there night or day, always first. All the frame and fenders were scratchy black. I understood it would be painted later, but like this, the contrast, I wouldn't have risked painting it. Wow, it looks great. I didn't know what to say. It looked like this incredible machine, more real because I could see right into it. There were no panels with stripes, plastic spoilers above the lights in back, or the end of a small exhaust pipe barely showing below. This bike looked like it had way too much to show to be outside of this garage, hidden, captured, somehow militaristic. Well done, man. Sai stood by Kirk and he gave him all the praises he could. I couldn't imagine it any other way. You really did it. All of Sai's abstract vision stood there in that garage. He could touch that he could touch that which he had only projected. You should have seen how long it took me to lace the spokes. Then they started recalling points and parts that had puzzled them both. Kirk opened the refrigerator and pulled out three beers. Lena, he tipped the can at me. Thanks. I took it and opened it and went to look at all these old windows he had stored up above the door. Thick paint and missing panes. Spider whips were separated down their long sides. Yeah, I bet. Sai and Kirk could keep talking for a long time now. Sai knew more about him after having just walked in this one room. What about the seat? Sai asked. And Kirk went to the bench and held it up. It was cracked leather, old and black, and there was a t-shirt wrapped around the bottom. I'm waiting for the new one. Oh, Sai said. I'll bolt it on. He put down his beer and looked for a socket. I opened the door. Outside, the dark sky looked really big. I walked out, and they held the seat in place and fastened it together. From outside, I heard them marvel even more. There was barely enough room in the carport to walk past, so I went down to the end, to the gate. I opened it. It was heavier than I thought. It fell toward the street, and I let it. The sky was colder now, and I noticed my jacket for the first time that night. I zipped it up to my chin, my beer cold in my hand. I took a drink. They were pushing the bike backwards out of the corridor, past the car parts and old furniture, its black and white tires making their way down the concrete and out into the street. Sai held the brake with his right hand. His face was bright, and there was an innocence in his smile, open and unaware. Do you care if I start her here? Sai asked Kirk. Nah, I don't care. Do it. I saw Kirk put his key into the switch, and I wasn't at all doubtful that Sai had not told him about the key he had. Sai was now behind me. His dark hair looked wet as he moved his head quickly to the bike, then at Kirk, then at the road, and finally at me. The seat they had attached was small, heart-shaped, and only big enough for one person. I wasn't going along. It didn't matter if I was willing or that I had come this far. In the last minutes, it was about this motorcycle, years waited, and possibilities. Sai held both the handlebars. He put his leg over the back of the motogutsi. 
I stepped back then, but forward again slightly and touched his leg. His pants were drawn tight against the top of his thigh. He kept himself centered, and I pulled away. He let his legs hold it all, buttoning his jacket with his hands and then flipping on the light. The street in front of him turned white-gray and shone in places with flecks. The light jumped a little on the asphalt. The engine started with a loud cracking sound, and I moved back two steps in one. Blat, 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 blat. The sound circled and reverberated off of the garage doors and fence fronts everywhere. I looked around with shoulders hunched. I moved towards Kirk and shook my head, frowning. Moving closer to me, he said, It's okay, really. Kirk turned again to look at his bike disappearing down the street. His head was cocked to one side. He was listening as I was, but for something different. Something that, by standing here, he was separate from. He ran after the sound swiftly a few steps, but without much effort, and he ended up two houses down, staring out. When the taillight was gone from you, from view, I still held, and I listened, feeling the cold around me. The sound, still loud, moved on and became more a part of the night, no longer drowning it out. I could follow it down to the stop sign at the corner, and it quieted as he turned. I imagined being able to run and catch him in that last moment. Then it raced up again and neared the intersection where we had begun walking, and slightly, gently, the sound got smaller. Now almost a hum, and I strained to hear it, and then it took off louder than when it had first started. The night was full of him, and I could tell he was on the road going back. I pictured him smooth and fast and bending close to the warmth of the bike. The night had changed again, and I had been brought this far. I could see the road here and under me, as far as the house lights allowed, a short distance in front of me. But he became part of a line I could never perceive. Once I had seen it described, not in words, but with a smooth sweeping of one's hand. He reached this, letting go of everything he had lost. From above, the sound climbed, and each time it rested only to build again and top itself off and over, and then it leveled. It was a long time before it was completely gone, and even then I listened to be able to hear him again, not to miss what was possible. Then the sounds became tiny and indecipherable and too far off to claim. <laughs> That's where it's left. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com.